0: Thank you Nate. My wife leaned over and said, I love this song. We used to sing it all the time as a kid growing up. That's great. He arranged that too. And we've had no gunshots from the organ so far. So that's, that's great. Richard was in here with Nate one night. You know, Nate, he's here a lot. This guy's committed to excellence. He he practices a lot here in the building and I like to come jam with them on the piano sometimes and not not mess them up too bad, but uh, they were in here at night and started doing it and Richard said they were ducking, you know, (laughs) where's that coming from? (laughs) So he emailed the whole security team just FYI and said, if you hear what sounds like gunshots today, it's the organ, don't panic. (laughs) We're going to get it fixed though, we're going to get it straightened out, I promise. It's appropriate that on Mother's Day uh, that we talk about a story about a woman, uh, the woman at the well, in John chapter four, and we've had an incredible uh, week of worship. Uh, last week, uh, last service was was just unbelievable uh, with the surprise proposal uh, here on stage, and and yes, I had a pin choir. Thank you very much, but these guys were screaming at me, Nathan, Nathan. They were all holding out pins. I had one. It was all part of the. It was a ruse. It was a, all part of the, the act. And then uh, to celebrate Richard's 20 years of service in this church on May 7th for all that he and Carol have given to to Woodmont Baptist to to make it what it is today. Just incredible, uh, sweet video from Steve Phillips uh, in Knoxville. Just amazing all the Lord did in that service. And I snuck in a little sermon at the end there on John chapter 1, but really the message had clearly already been delivered before the sermon was delivered. It was all about grace. It was all about grace upon grace. That the Word had become flesh and dwelt among us and He was full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. And that was just the prologue to this beautiful Gospel of John. It's a a spiritual Gospel, is what Clement of Alexandria called it. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's totally another animal. It's this beautiful gospel story of, of Jesus that John wrote, he says, in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, life in his name, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ." And that by believing, you may have life in His name. You know, the, the word Christ is really the Greek word Christos, and it's, it's really the, the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One who was prophesied to come into the world and to deliver it, to save the world, to be the one through whom God would redeem this broken, fallen, and sinful world. Jesus is the Messiah, as we just sang a minute ago, the Savior of the world. Do you believe that today? The story in John chapter 4 ends with the revelation that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So this amazing and powerful scene in John chapter 4 is, is known uh, as the woman at the well. Warren Weersby, the, the old Baptist preacher, he calls this the, the story of the bad Samaritan. This is someone I think that a lot of us can relate to, someone who has baggage, someone who has pain, who has wounds in her story thus far. So let's begin in verse 1, John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. What was happening was the Pharisees were trying to play John's disciples and Jesus' disciples off each other and create some kind of false competition. So Jesus said, I'm not having any of it. I'm I'm going back to to Galilee. He had been ministering in the south in Jerusalem, in Judea. John chapter 3 is about Nicodemus, part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. And now Jesus is going back to Galilee in the north. But in order to get to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. So in in order to really understand and appreciate this story, we're going to have to do a little historical and geographical lesson, okay? So I know it's Sunday morning and you're not ready for history or geography, but just stay with me for like two minutes. It's fascinating stuff, okay? Okay. You know that the Israelites were formed, Abraham, right? Abraham had Isaac, and, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 tribes of Israel. And they flourished, and they prospered, but then they sinned, and they rebelled, and so they were cast into slavery in Egypt. But even in Egypt, they multiplied probably 2 million, people. Jewish Israelite people living in Egypt when God delivered them miraculously through Moses and they went to Mount Sinai and They received the law at Mount Sinai That's what the Pentateuch is all about the first five books of the Bible and then they they leave Mount Sinai They go to uh, to the edge of the promised land, but they they fail to, to obey and go in They're scared so God sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years to wander and then finally Moses dies, and Joshua leads them into the promised land, and that's around 1200 B.C. Most scholars think it's about 1200, some scholars think 1400 B.C., and, and Joshua leads the conquest of Canaan. They, they conquer the land, they drive out the fearsome giant people because the Lord fights for them, right? And the Lord sets up judges, these judges like Deborah, like Samson, like Gideon, who will you know, administer justice. They will rule in disputes among God's people. But God's people look around and they see the kingdoms around them. And they say, we want a king. We want somebody on the throne with a sword who can lead us into battle as a nation. And God says, fine, you can have a king. And he gives him Saul. And this is the beginning of what we call the United Kingdom, right? There was three kings. They each reigned for 40 years. You had Saul from about 1050 B.C., to 1010, 10, and then you had David, right, remember Saul, he began to make compromises with God's ways, he said, I'll just fudge around some of these things, little white lies, and so God's spirit departed from him, and Samuel the prophet anoints David, this young shepherd boy, who was a man after God's own heart, but even he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, and he committed adultery, and conspired to murder her husband and all these awful things and so things got real messy but finally his son Solomon ascended to the throne in about 970 BC and Solomon started out great he was he was so wise and and God blessed him and he had all these riches but he began to accumulate more and more and more even though God's law said the king should not accumulate much gold nor many chariots how did he make his fortune Solomon was an arms dealer He he dealt chariots and weapons with Egypt, their former enemies, pagans that he was empowering with arms. And that's when things really got messy and and the whole kingdom fell apart. His his sons tried to kill him, so he kills his sons. And the kingdom splits into two. It's what we call the divided kingdom. If you're reading with us right now in our Bible readings, we're in 2 Kings right now. It's all about these two kingdoms. In the north is the kingdom of Israel. I know that's tricky. You think Israel is like. The whole thing. Not anymore. Israel is also known as Ephraim. It's also known as Samaria. Israel's the northern kingdom. Ten tribes go up to the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom where the two, two tribes are remains Judah or Judea, right? That's where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. And, and what happens is there's a lot of bad kings and there's a lot of aggressive neighbors, and so in 722, God judges Israel, the northern kingdom in the north, brings in the Assyrians to wipe them out, completely wipes out Israel, and so they're gone in in 722 B.C., and then the the kingdom of Judah in the south, they kind of said, that's what you guys get, you guys are awful, you don't, you know, you deserve to get wiped out. Well, that doesn't really sit well with God either, so they got wiped out in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in. And so you still have a smattering of Jews in 538, Cyrus from Persia, he he sends some Jews back from Babylon, he conquers the region, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem, and then you have in 323, the Greeks come in, right, Alexander the Great comes in, he conquers the region, that's why the Bible, the New Testament is written in Greek, because of Alexander the Great. And then you have, uh, you know, the Romans who come in after the Greeks, that's when the time of Jesus happens. But there's still Jews living in the area, right? The Jewish religion doesn't die. But what happens is in the north, it becomes this weird pseudo-religion. It becomes this this mix. Because when the king of Assyria came into Israel, he brought in all these foreigners, all these pagans from all over the world and settled them in Samaria. And they brought all their pagan gods with them. And so the Jews intermarried with the foreigners, and it became this strange mystic Judaism that wasn 't really Judaism at all, and so the Jews in the south they, they said we 're the real Jews, and they were they had the Torah still the whole the law of God they, they, they obeyed the ways of God still, and so they said those Samaritans are are really awful people they 're dirty they 're interracially mixed they 're worshiping a false religion they Uh, you know, are unclean all the time. They're ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So if a Jew wanted to travel from Judah to Israel, or to Galilee up in the north, they would have to go through Samaria. They would become unclean by that journey, just by being in Samaria. So what they would do is they would take a circuitous route. They would go across the Jordan River on the east side and go all the way around Samaria just to get up to Galilee, That's where Jesus was from. That's where Nazareth was up in the north, Galilee. So just to be in Samaria was to be defiled. You know, the Samaritans had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They had their own version of the scriptures. They still exist today. You can find Samaritan texts of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You can find these. They had their own holidays and their own observances. But by the time of Jesus, the good Jews had nothing to do with them. They were considered dirty, completely outcast. They were marginalized. They were treated horribly by those who had power. They were just the kind of people that God has a soft spot for. When the text says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, what scholars think it really means is that God caused Jesus to pass through Samaria in order to fulfill his divine plan for these outsiders, For these lost and marginalized and lonely people who live on the fringes of society. Even the pagans hated the Samaritans because they weren't really pagans. They were kind of half pagan and half Jewish. They were hated by everybody. No one liked the Samaritans. They were really reviled by all societies in that time. So what happens while Jesus is in Samaria? Verse 5. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You know, the sixth hour is is high noon. And anyone who's ever been to that part of the world can tell you, there's no shade there. They don't have trees like we have here. It's just scorching hot at noon. The sun's right overhead, and you can't escape it. So Jesus, who was fully human and fully divine, in his humanity, feels thirsty and tired and weary, and he knows where he can get water. Jacob's Well is famous. It's a famous location. So he stops at the Jacob's Well, and you can still go there today. It's it's on the West Bank. It's in Palestine in a little Greek Orthodox seminary in a town called Nablus. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria, a woman from Samaria. Came to draw water. This is not the time to draw water at noon. Most people would come in the morning or in the evening when it was cool. This woman doesn't want to interact with anyone. She wants to do her own thing, just go her own way and not see anyone. She shows up at high noon when when no one else is there. But Jesus was there. And what he does is completely scandalous. Look at the rest of verse 7. He says to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Scholars think what that means too is that Jews don't use the same stuff that Samaritans use. He doesn't have a vessel to draw water with. He doesn't have a bucket. He says, give me a drink from your bucket. She's like, you're gonna drink from this? You know that's against everything that our culture teaches. I know the Jewish culture says, you don't wanna have anything to do with me or my people, much less would you drink from my bucket? That would completely defile you. Who are you and what are you thinking is kind of what she's saying, it's crazy. He's he's not only a, a bona fide Judean Jew, but he's a Jewish rabbi. He knows all the purity laws better than anybody. He knows the history of Samaria Samaria, and here he is initiating a conversation with a Samaritan and not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. We know that in the culture of this day, women were second class citizens. They they weren't allowed to own property in the ancient Near East, the whole region. They weren't allowed to choose who they married or, or have any kind of political power at all. Again, it's very appropriate on a day where we celebrate the special women in our lives, that we celebrate this woman who is a hero of the Bible. And Jesus values this woman, the Samaritan woman, enough to break all the cultural rules and regulations in order to get to know her and to let her get to know him. This is bold, cross-cultural interaction in its purest form here. So how does Jesus respond to her her incredulity that he would speak to her or use her bucket? Verse 10, Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you now, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In his grace and in his compassion, he's he's basically saying to this woman, don't be amazed that I'm speaking to you. Be amazed that that you are speaking to me, the Messiah himself, the Christ is before you. If only you knew what I could do for you. Christ alone provides us with living water, he says. You know, water is, is necessary for life, isn't it? When when scientists find water on like a moon of Saturn or Jupiter or or on Mars, they say, well, if there's signs of water, then there could be life because where there's water, there is life. Remember that John writes this so that we may have life and have it to the fullest. John 10.10 says, what else do you need for life? Air? Yes, certainly air. Look at John chapter 3, what he told Nicodemus, verse 7 and 8. When he was talking with this Sanhedrin ruler in Jerusalem, he said, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. The wind, the breath of God Himself, comes through Jesus, who is the Messiah. What else do you need for life? Food? Yes. Look at John 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In Christ alone is life. Air, water, food, all the things that we need for life to the fullest are found in Christ and in Christ alone. I have come that they may have life, Jesus said, and have it to the fullest. But of course, the woman at the well doesn't get it right away. Look at verse 11. The woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Scientists, I mean, they tell us today that researchers say this well is still over 100 feet deep and it was probably deeper back then where do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob she still traces her roots back to jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock so just like nicodemus back in chapter 3 said how can i be born again you want me to go back into my mother's womb that's gross not doing that same thing with her she doesn't get it that jesus is talking on a deeper level here and and what is this living water it's water that'll never run dry it's living water that is produced by the Holy Spirit that wells up in the hearts of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as, and become part of God's redeemed children. Later in, in John chapter 7, Jesus explains that this living water is the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7 verse 37, he says, on the last day of the feast of, of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Living water comes through faith in Christ, and when you come to that saving faith, you receive the Holy Spirit inside of you that supplies you with this living water that sustains you throughout your life it's not like well water look at verse 13 Jesus said to her everyone who drinks of this water the well water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring that never runs dry a spring of water welling up to eternal life The woman still doesn't get it. She says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She says, oh, cool. Like, that'd be awesome if I had a miraculous supply of water that would just keep giving me water so I don't have to keep coming here and walking all the way across here to get water. That'd be great. But Jesus is not some traveling salesman here to give her a trick. She's looking on the surface of things, and and he's going to the root. So he lovingly takes her deeper. Look at verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Oh, clearly she doesn't want to discuss her husband or her lack thereof. I have no husband. End of story. Shut it down, right? Maybe she even meant for Jesus to feel bad for bringing up something that was kind of a sensitive subject in her life. But Jesus doesn't let it go. He's never concerned with being polite. Have you noticed that? He gently shows her both her own sin and that he knows all about her life deeply. Keep reading. Jesus says to her, you're right. He affirms her, you're right. You're right. Insane that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Oh, This lady has a story with a lot of baggage. She's carrying around this history of pain. It's some awful mix of burying dead husbands and divorce. You know, maybe the husbands divorced her. Women had no rights. They could divorce a woman like that with with no cause, really, back in these days. Some horrible story that she's carrying around, this pain that's deep within her. And so now she's living with a man who's not her husband as well. Just because you live with someone doesn't make you married, right? Our culture, you know, cohabitation is such a a popular way to do things. It's it's not God's best. It's not God's plan. So Jesus plows up her heart in order to receive the seed of truth. In order to receive the seed of truth, sometimes it must be plowed up by conviction first. Without conviction and repentance... There is no receiving of the gospel of truth until we are broken and on our knees before him. But she's not ready to deal with it yet. (laughs) So she turns the conversation away from her and all her pain. It's probably too painful for her. I get it. So she, she brings up an old debate that Jews and Samaritans have had for centuries. Verse 19, the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You know, the Samaritans firmly believe that the right place for the temple of God was on Mount Gerizim right there next to Sychar in Samaria. But Jesus isn't stumped by this debate. Once again, he just transcends the surface argument. And, and he transcends the cultural baggage between Jews and Samaritans, right? There's all this history of racism between the two groups. He's, he's having no part of that. He goes right past it. verse 21. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Neither side is right. Verse 22 You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Christianity is just a branch on the tree of Judaism, right? It's true that God revealed himself to his people, the Jews. But the hour is coming, verse 23 and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people it's true now everywhere we go we can worship god everywhere we we turn together to worship god the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies is present with us so the woman starts to get a feeling this guy may be the real deal he may be the one He may be the Messiah. Look at verse 25. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah, Mashiach, is coming. He who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She doesn't want to tip her hand yet. She says, I I hear that the Messiah is coming. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I imagine it was like scales that that fell from her eyes like Paul. All of her past pains and, and regrets and struggles all paled in the light of the true messiah who sat by the well of jacob now before her and just then his disciples come back verse 27 they show up they marveled at what he's talking that he's talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her they know better now than to question what jesus is doing they understand that he has a plan and that they're just along for the ride like always verse 28 so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see come and see a man who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ the Messiah they went out of the town and were coming to him so just as Jesus invited her to to come and worship the father so she went and invited others to come and worship the Messiah and all she does is tell him, come and see. She doesn't say, the Messiah's here and I got all the doctrine right. No, she just says, come and see. Come and see what God's done. You know, I would love for us here at Woodmont to cultivate a healthy culture of invitation. A culture where we think about inviting people in, in everything that we do. The invitation becomes a part of our DNA. And I'm not just talking about inviting people to church, Okay. I'm talking about inviting your coworkers, workers your, your friends, your family, your, your neighbors to come and see something that is so good that it can really be a blessing to them. To come and just come and see what the Lord is doing, what the Lord has done. Maybe that's at Woodmont. Maybe that's coming to church on Sunday morning. Or maybe it's coming to a barbecue at your house on a Friday night. Maybe it's inviting someone to a small group of ladies that are meeting on Monday nights. Maybe it's inviting someone to celebrate recovery who needs help from addiction. Who have you invited lately to come and see? You know, my wife and I were talking about this. We were convicted lately of of not inviting our, our neighbors to come and see what God's doing at Woodmont. People are hungry for the truth. They're hungry for relationships. They're hungry for community. They're hungry for meaningful encounter with the living God, who gives them a living water inside of their soul. So I know it's hard in this culture to invite others. Our culture tends towards privacy and autonomy. Invitation is a risk of breaking social etiquette, but Jesus transcends all the cultural barriers. Jesus shows us how to transcend the prevailing culture. If he can talk to a Samaritan woman, then you and I can cross to our neighbor and invite them in order to seek and save the lost. And check out how the story ends. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, the hero of the story here, besides Jesus, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I heard one preacher say this was a two-day intensive practicum for the disciples in cross-cultural evangelism. Here they are in Samaria having to engage full-time in cross-cultural evangelism. What would you and I experience in learning to relate to someone so different from us to invite them to come and see what the Lord has done through Jesus Christ? Our God is the Savior of the world. He can't be contained by one location. He can't be contained by a structure. And in in him is life, is air and bread and water that we all long for, the abundant life. So two questions here to close. What people are your Samaritans in your life? Who do you view with, with disdain? Who do you think of as unworthy? Who do you th- see as unclean, maybe, in your world today? Who would you be upset by if they showed up here at our church and sat next to you? Who would you be upset by if they, they came forward, maybe, to, to join our church or to receive Christ? Maybe it's Muslims. Maybe it's, it's homosexuals or transgendered people. Maybe it's staunch Republicans or staunch Democrats. Maybe it's poor people. Maybe it's rich people. Christ breaks down all the dividing walls of culture. I'm not saying that these people are right. All I'm saying is that they are loved by God and bear his image. That's all I'm saying. Will you boldly and lovingly step across the walls of culture for his sake and let those walls drop? Last question, what's keeping you from inviting others into the living water that Christ offers through the Holy Spirit? Really ask yourself honestly, what's holding me back? Are you ashamed of your faith today? Are, Are you concerned about your own reputation? Or do you want to avoid the messy work of new friendships? It's messy, people are messy. Do you like things the way they are around here and you don't want a bunch of new people coming in and changing things up? Cross-cultural evangelism is needed in our world today. It's needed in our church. Could you imagine what the Lord could do through Woodmont if we all got a passion for this? Imagine what he could do through us as, as he seeks out worshipers for himself across the lines of culture. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for being so comfortable in our own culture that we lose sight Of your mission to seek and save the lost God forgive us when we allow the walls of culture to become dividing barriers that keep us fenced in to our own locations thinking that we're right and they're wrong God help us to have a heart for the lost no matter where they are in our culture or across cultural lines God give us boldness give us compassion give us grace Give us eyes as as you see others. Help us to not merely see on the surface, but to look deeper across cultural lines. Forgive us of our own racism. Forgive us of our own biases. Forgive us of our own privilege that we have have squandered. God, help us to to be convicted about reaching the lost, about inviting those who need to come and see that you are the Savior of the world, and in you is life and life to the fullest. We love you, and we pray this in your high and your holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.